Hello, welcome to episode 94 of Herpetological Highlights, the podcast all about reptile and amphibian science with your hosts, myself, Tom Major, and co-hosting as per is Ben Marshall. And in our 94th, hi Ben, and in our 94th installment, we are going to be talking about snakes, which we like, snakes are good, and specifically hognose snakes. And even more specifically than that, eastern hognose snakes, which is Heterodon platyrinos. And this episode, the topic was actually chosen by Hedrigal, who's one of our patrons. This is a Patreon episode. So thanks very much to Hedrigal and uh, Great Selection. And if you want to be a Patreon and choose your very own episode topic, you can at patreon.com slash herp highlights. So yeah, eastern hognose snakes. Uh, obviously, when the episode was requested, Hedrigal said, oh, yeah, we'll have an episode on Heterodon, please. So we had a look in the literature and there are actually four species in the genus Heterodon, but uh, we're only really focusing on uh, the eastern hognose because it seems as though, at least in recent years, that has been the species which has received the most attention in research. Yeah, I feel like it's relatively rare we can pull off an episode that's all about one specific species like yeah doing to genus level a little bit more doable depending on the genus but it's often tricky like if you do if you if you pick something like anolis no problem heterodon with its few species uh yeah yeah it's, it's tougher i think we've gotten pretty lucky yeah i think we struck gold with these two papers um so yeah the first paper we're going to talk about is about the color mutations the color varieties that you find in this eastern hognose snake and the second is about maybe some of them are a little bit smaller than others for various reasons which we'll get into later um but before we introduce the first paper i thought we could give a little bit of background on heterodon generally because there's some quite cool etymology behind the uh the name heterodon so heterodon comes from the Greek words heteros, which means different, as we know, and odon, which means tooth. And that refers to the enlarged teeth at the rear of the upper jaw. So these are the teeth which inject the mild venom, which is specific to amphibians. And uh, yeah, so that's where heterodon comes from, different tooth. And platyrinos means, um, well, flat the Greek nose. words, say again? Flat nose. Exactly, flat right? nose, yeah, yeah. Did you just know that off the top of your head? Well, I was like, well, what's what's so remarkable about these snakes? Well, they got squished faces. Yeah. And rhinos, rhino, horn, and then there's this platy like plateau. Very or nice. platypus. Platypus, which famously means flat puss. Yeah. It's, it's like a flat cat. We yeah, heard that I swear we've said that exact joke before. <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing this for too long. So, uh, yeah, they're modest snakes. They're not massive. Um, they reach about 85 centimetres would be a big one, uh, SVL. That's uh, quite a stocky 84 centimetres. They're quite chunky characters. And they're active in the daytime. They lay eggs. And like I said, they nearly exclusively feed on amphibians, and many of many of which are toads from the family Buffonidae. Sorry, Ben. I know you like toads. Well, you know... Clearly, so does uh, so do these heterodons, just for yeah. different reasons. You've made an enemy of Ben, heterodon. Uh, yeah, so let's get into the first paper, shall we? It's by Latanzio and Buontempo, 2021, brand new. Ecogeographic divergence linked to dorsal coloration in eastern hognose snakes, published in Herpetologica. 
So these snakes famously come in a few different colours. If you were to Google Eastern Hognose Snake, you'd see four different sort of main colour varieties, at least as far as the authors of this paper are concerned. Yeah, I I think that's important to bring up. It's like you're categorising them, but there is, um, they're existing on a gradient, right? It's not like there are these distinct morphs and nothing in between. There are always going to be a little bit of... Uh, variation that don't fit perfectly in those categories it is a yeah it's a continuum like all of mother yeah. nature yes yes even species wow so uh yeah just for the sake of the paper and so our nice simple monkey brains can understand things having been categorized neatly they dedicate four different color morphs black morph brown morph a yellow morph and a red slash orange morph. Do you have a favourite out of those morphs, Ben? Oh yeah, easy. It's got to be the the red orange. Yeah, me too. Gotta They're be. so much. They're so far and away the best. Like okay. lava snakes, love them. It, yeah, they literally look so cool. I think, uh, yeah, you know, the brown one. Uh, you know, I mean, I kind of like it just because that plain brown kind of resembles an Escalapian snake. Uh, what did you say? Understated. Understated. You got. You got yeah. to appreciate the uh, the classiness. It's not showy. It's not trying too hard. Just plain default brown. snake. Yeah, and I mean black. You can always appreciate black because it's kind of cool. It's like it's sleek. Is yeah, what black. it is. Yeah, yeah. it looks modern. Um, I would say slimming. Would I be, suppose. Yeah, you know, in an office environment, the black one would probably. And then they got the yellow one, which just does, I don't know, I feel like the yellow one's having a bit of an identity crisis, really. Um, it doesn't really <laughs> look like the other ones. It's <laughs> it's, uh, it's too yellow. It's too yellow. It's, uh, it's too much. It's jarring, jarringly yellow. Whereas, of course, then we come finally to the orange and red one, which you've so beautifully described as lava snake. And uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, that is just delightful. I mean, it's unlike the black and the brown, the yellow... And the orange and red morphs are not const. They're not one color. They're um, and apparently the brown ones can also be blotchy as well. It's just the example image they've used is not blotchy. But the red and yellow ones, there are you sort of that. That's the background color, and then they've got darker sort of saddles and splotches on top. So, yeah, there's just a little bit more interest, a little bit more flavor. <laughs> I'm yeah. glad you said the red was your favorite. If you'd have said any other, I'd have been like, I, w- I just be- I would have been shocked to be honest. Well, unless I unless I'd gone with brown and said specifically because of their similarity with Escalopian snakes, that would have that would have been my way around. Uh... I would feel like you were ridiculing me in some way had you said that. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you would have been correct. <laughs> so, the whole point of this paper, right? Okay, cool. We've got four differently coloured eastern hognose snakes. Sweet. Okay, great. Why? Why, why are they different colours? Yeah. Why? That's what we want to know. Is it because, well, do they have, firstly, do they have different ranges? Do you find them in different areas? And if that is the case, why? Is there some element of the climate which makes them more suited or adapted to their environment? I mean, you've got to think the dorsal coloration of snakes. They make the point in this paper, actually, that belly coloration, right, 
belly coloration you only see when an animal decides to show it you, which interestingly is something that these uh, these hognose snakes will do. Uh, they play dead, so one of their defense strategies is to turn upside down, stick their tongue out, and pretend they're dead. So they, you know, their their belly coloration is sometimes used and seen, but it's used by predators. Whereas the dorsal coloration, the color on the the back of the animal, is constantly visible to the world when they're cruising around. So it stands to reason that it's under a lot of different selection pressures from things like camouflage. So, you know, if it's a very jarring color, it's going to stand out to predators. So it's probably important that they have some ability to be camouflaged in their environment. And then also things like thermoregulation. So is the dorsal coloration playing a role in how well they can heat up or cool down in their environment? And you can imagine that if these animals are in different, slightly different areas, they might also be in different habitats where it's beneficial to have different camouflage or you know, different thermoregulatory properties in terms or, of heating uh, and cooling. aposematism and uh, a sort of mimicry angle as well that, that gets mixed in, either mimicking something that is more brown and plain or uh, mimicking something which is, you know, it's got your brighter colours, be that sort of, you know, some sort of coral snake or, or something along those lines. Certainly with the yellows and reds, that's where your mind sort of goes, isn't it? So Yeah. Yeah, whenever I see an animal that's yellow, I'm a little bit uneasy because of wasps. Right. That's all one and, thing. And your f- irrational fear of lemons. Yes. I wish you hadn't brought up lemons. Yeah, I'm sorry. That was, that was out of So, uh, yeah, what they did was they got together a bunch of images from online sources and they categorized them as one of these four color varieties. And then they also, yeah, did some... Uh, niche modeling so yeah spatial distribution. before you jump onto niche modeling can we just just sing the praises of uh like openly well i was going to say openly but semi openly available data like citizen science data community science data collected by the people being used to actually explore and inform some sort of ecological question like iNaturalist data that comes from people out and about taking pictures of snakes they see sticking them online with no restrictions there you go yeah yeah you're, you're bang on yeah so the data the images that they found came from google searches iNaturalist um did they use gbif as well people usually get on gbif well i don't think they used gbif in this case but the vast majority of stuff on gbif does tend to come from iNaturalist it's just the research grade uh iNaturalist observations Oh, okay. So yeah, um, this is a big citizen science effort then, because that's yeah, where they got yeah. these images. But it's 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 good if you've got uh, ideally copyright uh, compatible images, you're more likely to be able to do stuff like this. And when I say compatible, I mean not all rights reserved sort of copyrights. Ideally, something which is like. Um, uh, you get your Creative Commons uh, non-commercial use and things like that. That opens a lot more doors for scientists to be able to use images rather than just slapping it on and restricting use as, as much as possible or not specifying because the default is all rights reserved in a lot of cases. So, What, when you're uploading images where? Um, to iNaturalist. I believe the default on iNaturalist is all rights reserved, which is the default if you put any image anywhere. Is That's, that's what copyright defaults to. So no one can use it without your permission. Um, iNaturalist, I'm again, it's, it's, it's been a while since I've looked into it, but I believe you can specify different licensing 
The non-commercial one, I think, is uh, 04. And that allows it to be used non-commercially, i.e., you know, scientifically, educationally, stuff like that, but restricts people making money off it. Well, that sounds ideal. Could you still use the... Say you just found the image, and I mean, for the, for the purposes of this, they were mainly using the um, metadata, the geolocation yeah. data. So surely you could use that without any. Yeah, there's no, it, it, there's no the, copyright for that. You're not reproducing it anyway. No, you're not reproducing it. You're not explicitly using the image uh, for the thing you're creating, i.e., this paper, i.e., this data set. Um, so that's fine. Um, they're also not directly making money off it. It does get a little bit. Um, Depending on the journal, they can get a little bit funny with um, if you were recreate if if you actually displayed the image, some of the images you used, and things like that. Um, but because it's the end thing, isn't the images? It's a sort of derived um, and combined dataset. It's it's I think it's fine. Um, Regarding using like metadata from these images, I think that's a little bit more of a gray area in a lot of cases. Um, but I think what ends up sort of being the case is that stuff is iNaturalists. So it's okay. Whereas the image retains, you know, the, the author retains the rights to the the image itself. So um, it's, um... But that's why, that's why I'm encouraging people when you do upload stuff to this, actually bother picking a license which isn't fully restrictive because then it removes all this ambiguity you know say mm. it can be used non-commercially job done you know then you're opening the door to all this stuff without any sort of uh gray area with any sort of ambiguity relinquish relinquish your images entirely to iNaturalist or that too, yeah i mean that's the other thing if you actually don't mind make them public domain then they can be used freely for whatever purpose so, let your images be used. Take a picture of that snake, put it on iNaturalist, and who knows, maybe one day it will be part of a, a, a paper. So, let's talk about the different ranges of these different colour mutations, shall we? Yeah. Yeah. Our black, brown, red, orange, and yellow colour Oh, marks. so, I don't know if we've mentioned, but this is a species which is very widespread over sort of southeastern United States, hence the name Eastern Hognose Snake. Yeah, where are we going? We're going everywhere from, like, Florida all the way up to, I'm guessing that's, like, easy Massachusetts, right? And as far east as states which I'm very poor at picking out without, uh, without boundaries. Is a Maryland over there? No, that's East Coast. So I West mean, yeah, Coast. it's it's co it's it's covered, but not it's not where it's not West like I'm trying to trying to describe the Western extent. Oh, you're trying to describe the Western extent. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah did I say East? I no, meant West. I just don't know what states are where. To be honest with you, doesn't matter to me. Either so, way, uh... <laughs> it goes all the way west. If you would draw a line up from the western edge of the Gulf of Mexico, pretty much over there. <laughs> yeah, it's a big range. It's a big range. And um, yeah, you know, two of the other species in the genus are called the southern hognose and the western hognose. And you can guess where those are. So the first thing they wanted to find out, obviously, was are these different color varieties in different areas? And the answer was yes, to some extent. It's important to realize that across the range of this species, you get 
all the color variations in most places. However, they're more or less common in different areas. That's what they're essentially looking at in this paper, isn't it? There's a few jump out, like standout weirdnesses of like no red morphs uh, apparently existing in Florida or um, a real lack of uh, dark or, or black morphs in the northwest. But there are still a few, you know, there's still some exceptions to that one, at least. They yeah. are broadly overlapping. There is still a gradient, like we said, with the uh, the actual color, too. There's a gradient in color. There's a gradient in where these e- colors exist. So it's it's more general patterns and less like this prescriptive, hard geographic barrier from one morph to another. You know, you cross the county line and suddenly it's only yellow eastern hognoses. It's not, it's not going to be the case. Sure. Yeah. And so there were some differences in the ranges broadly. So the black faced snakes are more prevalent in the southeast area of the range. They're almost kind of pushed into the sort of corner of the range. The brown phases... But we're not in Florida. Except for Florida. The brown phases uh, tended to be in the sort of central US plains environments. We're talking about west of the Appalachian Mountains. Red-orange phases uh, were sort of in forested areas of the Appalachian Mountains and the northeastern United States. And the yellow phases were generally throughout the species range with the highest occupancy north and west of the southeastern and southern coastal plains. So some slight differences in the ranges. And I think if you were just to look on a map, which we have handily in the paper, um, yeah, it's noticeable that the yellow ones are kind of more dominant in the far east, the far west. The brown ones in sort Mm -hmm. of the north and the east. And red ones, again, sort of similar to the yellow ones, more east and west. And yeah, black ones all over the place, but generally more southern and eastern. Yeah, isn't it sort of interesting that there's this real hot spot for um I don't know, it might it might just be the observations, it might not be actual hognose numbers, but on the western side of the Gulf of Mexico, in all the morphs, there seems to be this like hognose zone. And it's the pattern seems to be apparent in all of them that there's this almost like upside down U shape or sideways U shape, backwards C. Are you seeing that with a little like gap in the middle of this hot spot, bottom, bottom left? Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's just Hognose Central down there. I wonder if there's like a national park or something down there that everyone's visiting. I think it's way, it's way bigger scale than that. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're talking. Oh, you're right. It's like the whole size of the state of Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's huge. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what that. Yeah, I, I wonder why that is. Um... Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely noticeable. So so yeah, there's some slight variation between where you find the different uh, color varieties. And let's get into a little bit about the climate in those areas and why that might be. Yeah, I mean, the game plan is that they're trying to, you know, they've, they've thrown these four possible uh, predictors, I suppose is the way to do it. It's like, what could be driving where these snakes are? Um, and I suppose the best way of really describing it is not overall describing what um eastern hognoses need because that's broadly described as the climate on the eastern half of the u.s that's not really what this paper's about so um what we really care about is where they where certain morphs deviate from 
the overall eastern hognose situation. I can start off with mean mean diurnal temperature range, where most of the morphs they've got this this peak around sort of 10, 10 degrees is what they what they can handle in terms of mean diurnal temperature range. They that's what they that's what they prefer. It drops off as it gets warmer, but the real standout weirdness is for the black morphs, they don't seem to care as much. Like, mean diurnal temperature range is not that good at predicting where those black morphs exist. But also, it's looking like maybe they prefer a slightly higher uh, mean diurnal temperature range, around around the sort of difference of 12 degrees. So, overall, yeah, okay, it, it, it's doing a decent job at predicting where eastern hognoses are. Less of a good job with the black morph hognoses, and the black morph hognoses do seem to be wanting something different. So if you remember, you're saying that they exist in, what, the southeast? Southeast, yeah. Right, so that might be one of the uh, one of the things existing in the southeast leading to uh, the prevalence of the black uh, morph in that area. But something yeah. like isoformality, so that's, again, difference between uh, day and nighttime temperatures, relatively consistent with all the morphs, apart from one standout weirdness. They're all like in sort of isoformality of, what's that, 37%. Yeah? As soon as it gets over that, things are... Uh, you're more likely to find these snakes, apart from the so, red and orange one. So that's a 37% difference in the temperature of the hottest part of the day and the warmest part of the night, uh, coldest part of the night. I don't know how you calculate it. You're going to have to check that one. <laughs> Why is it a percentage? Yeah. I wasn't expecting it to be a percentage. Isothermality quantifies how large the day to night temperatures oscillate relative to the summer, winter, annual oscillations. Right. So that's basically meaning that day, day to night, uh, day to night differences are. 36% as big as the seasonal differences. Yeah? Gotcha. So, red-orange is the standout one here. All the others, they hit that sort of 37%. It seems anything above that they can handle, or actually prefer. Whereas red-orange, it peaks. It peaks from, I'd say, I don't know, 35 to maybe low 40s of that formality, and then it drops off rapidly whereas the other morphs are fine so basically in cases where the day to night variation gets closer in ex in uh, extent to the seasonal variation in temperatures the red orange morph can't handle so remind me where the red red orange morph were they were similar to the to the black morph sort of south east, and east west, but really. more right so it's far far west of the range and the far east so they're in cases where the they don't exist in places where the seasonality day to night is a high percentage of uh, sorry the where the day to night temperature isn't a high percentage of the seasonal variation which i guess makes sense in a coastal environment where the day to nights are going to be more stable perhaps yeah i don't know that was a little bit tricky to uh yeah, that one. Get your I head guess. around because you need to understand the seasonal variation as well to put it in context. Yeah. Yeah. Precipitation seasonality, not as big as a driver, I don't think. Like, they all seem relatively consistent that they're 
they're sort of like in a sort of 33% seasonality variation. There is, you know, they trail off at different amounts, so there is some subtle differences here with uh, uh, with brown sort of being more driven by this precipitation of seasonality, the brown more sort of more occurring in, in areas defined by differences in seasonal precipitation, but really the pattern remains the same for all of them. So not a big standout. Um, and again, you know, like precipitation of the warmest quarter, again, the patterns are pretty similar between them, but a couple of sort of deviations where the black morph isn't handling areas of lower precipitation as much, which again makes sense in that sort of southeast, I suppose, more tropical, you know, we're heading towards more sort of tropical climate and higher rainfall in that sense. But the other standout is yellow has this real dip um, in, I suppose, what would be called sort of higher precipitation areas. And looking at the map for yellow, uh, yellow's a little bit hard to, hard to get around. That makes sense though, the right? Like, you could imagine yellow being a yellow. If there's slightly less, if there's too much rain, the environment might become too green. And then you stand out a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, could be, could be. So, again, not not crazy obvious patterns, I wouldn't say. And overall, you know, the, the opposite of, of standout is this the brown morph being pretty much in the middle, apart from that, that sort of seasonal precipitation, relatively middle and sort of typical of all the patterns seen in each of the, um, each of the climate variables, but more so. Yeah. yeah, it tended to show similar patterns, but just tended to show a higher probability of occurrence um, in the case of all of them, which makes sense because it is distributed the most widely, I would say, and seems to occur the most frequently. Is that is that fair? Would you say that's a fair way of describing how how the sort of brown morph appears across uh, yeah. Eastern US? Yeah, and I think yeah, and I think the brown morph is actually the one that they had most of as well, which stands to what you just said. Right, and I don't think they did too much in terms of correcting for the differences in sample size. So yeah. it would it, it, basically it's describing the higher occurrence of that brown morph, which is fine. Right. But it, right, and it right. also makes sense if it is a sort of more intermediate morph, because you can imagine brown being an intermediate between the black morph and the yellow, and even essentially a darker red-orange in some cases... Yeah. So it would make sense, especially you know, with its distribution, it, that it is fitting into a sort of more generic, more generic climate niche. Yep, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, Brown's sort of the middle road, middle road character. Okay, so yeah, we've got these slight climatic differences, which are admittedly a little bit nebulous and hard to conceive. But yeah. there are some climatic differences there, and you know, in conjunction with the fact that these individuals' colours are found in or at least more prevalent in different areas of the range, kind of speaks to this idea that, you know, climate, obviously, you can't just say, oh, there's more yellow snakes. I mean, let's have an example. I mean, uh, you know, the red ones, the red ones, um, they yeah. are 
they like we were saying they dip off they dip off where there's a high percentage isothermality right they don't yeah. dip off because of that high percentage isothermality the isothermality is obviously having some influence on the environment beyond the snakes which is leading to the habitat being more or less suitable for those snakes and that could be something right. to do with the vegetation right um it you know it could be that the i mean it- the reason for that isothermality is is a uh, because there's a particular topography that the snakes also like. Yep. Um, you know, yeah. it's not it's not actually the climatic variables that it might be, but it it's could not be. necessarily. I mean, it's certainly yeah. the thermal ones and the link. You know, because these animals do have to thermoregulate and things, and we know that color does have an impact on thermoregulation. There is definitely a role to be played for some of the climatic stuff. But you're right; it it influences the environment as a whole, the whole ecosystem. You know, you're yeah. also dealing with co-occurrence of other species. You know, we brought up the mimicry and stuff. So I think there is scope for a study like this to basically be expanded. Because we have a lot of this information, certainly at this this level. You know, we're dealing with quite a, a coarse level analysis here. You know, quite broad. Well, quite broad. It's, you know, it's half a continent almost. Um, so stuff like uh, vegetation could be taken into account uh, either either density of vegetation or certain key habitat types, vegetation types, be that pine, be that uh, deciduous, be that, you know, wetlands and things like that. But we also have decent data. I mean, it's, it's the states, isn't it? So we've got outrageously good data for the distribution of other species, which could be folded into a model like this to try and explain... The existence of certain morphs over over others. Yeah, we could do more layers. So yeah, I think in the sort of the, the conclusions of this paper are yes, they they're found in different areas, the different color varieties, and that is partially explained by changes in the climate, which could reflect other elements of the environment more broadly. So yes, there yeah, are with different a, with areas. a few little sort of instances of. Um, like the red morph being connected to pine and you know, like pine woods with sort of warmer colours and things like that on the ground, so potentially linked to camouflage, things like that. Um, yeah, there's there's all sorts of specific examples that could explain uh, these morphs as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think it is I think it is some some decent evidence for climate being part of that. Yeah. As you say, it might be two levels detached, but it's still there. It's still, still some sort of signal there. Still relevant. <laughs> All right, so yeah, let's move on to the second one. Uh, this is by Vanek and Burke 2020, Insular Dwarfism in Female Hognose Snakes on a Barrier Island, published in the Canadian Journal of Zoology. Um, so yeah, this is a completely different. We're changing tack entirely. We're moving away from forget climate. about color. <laughs> yeah, forget <laughs> about color. Forget about climate. And this is about dwarfism. And in mammals and birds, it's generally accepted that when mainland animals colonize islands, small species tend to evolve larger bodies, which is called insular gigantism, and large species tend to evolve smaller bodies, which is insular dwarfism, which is, you know, this confusing double-way thing. But, yeah, basically, big things get small, small things get big, is how you can think about it. And obviously, that's a generalisation. That doesn't go for all animals, but there is Yeah, think of, think of, of it trend. like any, any of the episodes we've dealt with, these sort of overarching laws 
and how we're always talking about exceptions to them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Exception. Yeah. The exception that proves the rule and all that. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of different things. We're talking about snakes, not mammals and birds, which I just mentioned. But there's lots of different things that could affect the size of snake species, which find themselves on islands. So you've got to think about competition. You know, what other animals are there? If there's a, a whole host of big things that they're competing with, maybe it, it push them to become bigger. Uh, there's also phylogeny, you know, the evolutionary history of that animal. There's, you know, probably most importantly in most cases, uh, food availability, because obviously you can only get as big as the stuff you can eat and you need to be able to tackle the prey you're tackling. Um there's some examples that they cite in here. So Australian tiger snakes. Uh, rapidly evolved both dwarfism and gigantism on different islands and that corresponded to the availability of prey size so where there was bigger prey for them to eat they would get bigger where there was smaller prey they would get smaller the same is true of european adders viperiberus our very own venomous snake species here in the uk they were found to be smaller on islands where there were smaller voles for them to eat and so yeah there is a kind of precedent for snakes changing in size based on prey yeah so yeah enter the eastern hognose snake again we're back with heterodon platerinos and we're looking at the species across we're in the east coast of the usa uh there's four locations and yeah the reason this study came about is because the authors were on an island an unnamed island kept secret because uh, they didn't want snakes to get collected but there's this island they call it small island Small Barrier Island. It's south of Long Island in New York. And this unnamed mystery island hosts a healthy and dense population of eastern hognoses. And the authors are, you know, mooching around on this island, studying the hognoses as herpetologists are wont to do. And they noticed something a little bit strange. So there are lots of adult eastern hognoses around. You can't move for them. The island's thick with them. (laughs) You're you're wading through them. Up to your waist in hognoses. Yeah. Riving around like a bucket of eels. Yeah. And there's very abundant food on this island as well in the form of fowler's toads, which are Anaxurus fowleri. But despite this abundant food and despite the fact that there's tons of these snakes around, they never saw any whoppers. They were just thinking, well, there's tons of food here. There's tons of snakes, but we don't see any of these big chonkers like we do elsewhere. Why might that be? So they decided to compare the sizes of adult snakes from two mainland sites so that's two sites on the mainland usa and then they compared those two snakes on long island literally long island of new york and this mystery unnamed small island Mm -hmm. and they wanted to see if they were different sizes and crucially they were actually because in some studies in the past where people have looked at the sizes of snakes and tried to compare them to each other they haven't treated males and females as two separate groups they've just had all snakes lumped in together are they bigger or smaller but in this paper, they but decided they were going to measure them separately. Yeah, and the justification behind that, I think, and the justification behind that is relatively sensible, and that's that uh, different selective pressures are acting on the male and female snakes, right? We know that there are perf- you know, plenty of examples of sexual dimorphism in snakes, and what better example of that is different selective pressures pushing differences in body size, and that's within the species. That can be within a location. So... It's definitely worthwhile looking at it in that sense when you're looking at something like dwarfism because you yeah you don't know how these different lifestyles could interact with something else that could be driving driving body size yeah 
Yep, yep, yep. So, uh, yeah, they decided to compare the sizes. And uh, in total, they measured 791 snakes, 450 well, of which were adults. They didn't. They didn't? They, no, they, as in the authors, didn't measure that number of snakes. They're pulling stuff in from uh, museum stuff and previously unpublished studies. Um, which I only draw attention to because because they they draw attention to themselves is that there's a lot of different ways of measuring snake size. Um, and they said, all right, SVL snout event length is a good one to go for because you don't want to have the tail included because that can be sexually dimorphic and therefore subject to different pressures again. And it can be chopped off and lost in different circumstances. You don't really want to use mass because that can fluctuate, you know, season to season. Or if the snake's just eating a large meal, it's going to be a lot heavier than one that hasn't had a meal for a little bit longer. You know, you can see that. Just look at a snake that's eating a meal. You can tell it's going to be heavier. So we're working with SVL. That's also not a done deal. How do you measure SVL for a wiggly probably not particularly uh, cooperative little individual there. And when you're drawing measurements from museum specimens, so dead snakes, uh, live snakes that have potentially been knocked out, you know, anesthetized or something, and potentially measurements from live snakes using, I don't know, what's, what's, what's the method where you, like, squeeze box stuff? Yeah. We know that these have a. You have just an get impact. them in a plastic box and then you push it down and you can take the measurement. But um, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, I mean, we don't do any of that. We just uh, take a picture from above and then get a picture of the underneath of the tail so you can measure the mm-hmm. TL and subtract it from the hole. Yep. But you see what I mean in terms of a diversity of ways yeah. of measuring SVL, something that should be, you know, on the face of it sounds quite simple, um, which is fine. You know, everybody's got their sort of different way of doing it, depending on the practicalities of the study. But you do have to recognize that there is going to be variation between those methods. Mm -hmm. And I only sort of draw attention in this study because they are using data from like old studies in terms of, you know, comparison to their new data, you know, 10, 15 years before. Is it the case that um, there's from each sort of population grouping there are a variety of ages of data well not in the case of their small island that's all modern data all modern data okay yeah. so that is a potential source but for of the rest bias. of them yes it seems to be okay. it, uh, my, what i've what i can work out um it's a it's a range of a range of dates and stuff yeah okay so yeah they set out to measure all the snakes in these four groups and yeah they compared them all uh, did some statistical tests and one thing which stood out was that the SVLs, so the snout event lengths of females, varied significantly by location. Noticeably, the ones on the small island were shorter than females from both mainland sites. Uh, they were 8% shorter on average. There wasn't a difference, well, not a major difference between snakes on the large and small islands in terms of their size. But the small island females were smaller than the mainland females. I, I was I was frustrated by this paper because I wanted to run my own tests in a in a way that I understood. Because I'm I'm going to be a little bit judgmental and harsh again. I, I feel like I'm getting worse at this, but there's there's no data available, so I couldn't do these. So I'm having to back work stuff on the data they provide. So first, 
they're specifying there's no there's no random there might be random trapping I'm not sure but we don't know the way they've trapped the snakes right the tests they're using their stats one of one of the assumptions is that there is random individuals are randomly taken from the population yeah yeah I couldn't see anything that really gave me confidence that that was occurring. In fact, they were using Judas snakes for their small island stuff. Now, what's the limitation for radio tracking individuals? Do they have to be a certain size, right? Yeah, you'd so we've got so. a little bit working in there with certain sizes are more likely to be tracked than others and stuff going on. There. You know, there isn't random sampling here. Which makes me a little bit nervous when you're throwing in sort of ANOVA and things, you know, stats tests that assume random sampling. So ideally, I would have jumped back, jump in their data, run some tests that don't have the same sort of assumptions. Can't do that. Data's not there. But what we do have and what they were very good at reporting are means and standard errors. And you can build a distribution off that because we also have sample size. Now... Things in nature, they tend to be normally distributed, right? That's just one of those those magical <laughs> magical things we've gotten very lucky about. That a mean tends to be, you know, you tend to have a mean for a population that distributes out a bell curve. Yeah, as most people, you know, know what a bell curve looks like. Um, so that's what I did. I jumped I jumped in a little little hour and I made some bell curves. I'm gonna share my screen with Tom so he can see what's going on here. Because <laughs> we're we're gonna go through a little a little for for experiment. Um, is that sharing? Is that working? Yep, yep. I can see my okay. own face, which is ghastly. So, I plugged in their means and standard errors, and generated normal distributions based on those numbers, right? <laughs> for all the different sites. <laughs> wow. And what I'm showing Tom now is the, these bell curves for each of the four sites based on the numbers this paper provided. These lovely normal distributions. And, I mean, can, you, you can pick out which one's the small island out of those ones, yeah? Purple. Right. But that's the over, overall data set. But what's very clear is there's a huge amount of overlap. Yeah. So what we can do is work out what's, what's, the, what's the percentage probability that if you were to pick a snake at random, a female snake at random from small island, that it would be larger than a female picked at random from one of the other sites. And from what I can work out, you'd have a 55% chance that that female would be larger. So, you know, flipping a coin's 50-50. There's a huge amount of overlap. Huge. And I don't know whether this is as convincing a scenario for dwarfism as their stats are suggesting because what they really focus in on is that the top five snakes from small island are very different from the top five snakes from all the other places too right and they run that multiple times with similar sort of sample sizes to to illustrate but i'm why why would you pick five why is top five important I know it's a sort of, um, you know, you've got to pick something, I suppose. But I'm questioning why. <laughs> I'm questioning the sensitivity of your findings to 
a sort of selection, something that you're picking. It doesn't have any sort of biological meaning, the top five. What's the top five? So showing you another little plot here. And that's a normal distribution based on the top five, the top 10, the top 15, the top 20, the top 25, the top 30. And basically, as you increase this number of the top largest snakes you're picking, the distribution gets dragged out and out and out. Yeah, because you're including mm. smaller and smaller snakes. That, that to me, just, yeah, it looks like you'd only really pick the top five uh, as a means of misrepresenting the data. Well, this is, this is my slight <laughs> issue with the paper is that naturally the top five are going to be... Um, Freaks. More extreme one way or another. Um, it's... But also, you can't just pick the top five when you've got more from one population than another as well. Well, that's why they run their, their bootstrapping of rerunning, you know, the comparisons with the same number of individuals pulled right, out. Right. And they're saying that these, these bigger snakes aren't existing in Small Island. Um, but I'm just not... So would you say that rather than saying that the small island populations are generally smaller, you could say that the biggest are smaller rather than the... Or is that still a push because you haven't got as many? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying... I am, I'm fine with them concluding that the small island ones are smaller. I think that what I'm taking exception to is the way it's reported like there is this... Like it's a done deal. Um, because I'm not I'm, I'm not describing how significant the overlap in the sizes are I think is doing disservice to how small these differences are and I'm concerned sort of that the stats are overly generous towards finding something which if you use the numbers and just do a normal distribution for the overall population, is it seems a little bit better than a flip of a coin that they're smaller. That's, well, that's that's my concern. I mean, the, the discussion starts with we found compelling evidence of dwarfism. And I'm not sure if I'd call it compelling because of the um, the magnitude of the difference. Mm. And the fact that the sampling is not quite there in terms of being that confident there's definitely something going on i mean i don't want to i don't want to get around from that it like from the data they're presenting like i showed you those distributions right yeah and if you were to show um you know you could show 100 people those distributions i think they would all say that those ones are smaller it's just whether that <laughs> that level of decrease constitutes something worthwhile or it's more a sort of affectation of the sampling. Yeah, so there's, there's a little bit too much certainty, basically. That's, yeah, I mean, I just... <sighs> I, I think it was me, me just not liking this, like, oh, p-value is lower than that, bam, their smallest evidence of dwarfism. Mm. Like, I... It's say so I I, I couldn't do it the way I wanted because the the raw data is not provided for the mainland and Long Island sites, um, so it's all just based off their their means and standard errors. Because the other alternative of what's happening is less that the mean is shifting, as in they're 
on average smaller and it's more a shift in the variation in sizes is shifting. I'm not sure if that, I suppose that would be dwarfism. Would that not be dwarfism? You know, a, a reduction in size variation. Would that be adequate for evidence of dwarfism? Um, I guess only if the reduction in size variation was from the top end. <laughs> I well, that's, otherwise... but that's right. So you could be dealing with a scenario where it's actually a truncation in the sizes of snakes that are, that can survive. Yeah, are you suggesting there might be a same effect at the bottom? Well, that's no. what I'm, I'm. I don't know. I'm. I'm 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 picking I'm picking holes where they almost don't need to be holes picked, but you you're cutting you're cutting you're only dealing with adults, yeah. You're applying the same uh, cutoff for mature snakes, yeah. Yeah. So you you have a fixed low end for the snakes, regardless of regardless of locality, yeah. Yeah. But you're looking for overall dwarfism? Would would the sexually mature cutoff also change? Yeah, it would be fair to assume, wouldn't it? Which is now I'm sort of thinking, okay, well maybe you should do the entire population, including including juveniles. Whole thing. You, you don't worry about maturity. You Yeah, you you treat it on a on a population level. And Okay, you're only going to be seeing changes in the top end then, as as your dwarfism. That's what you're defining as dwarfism, is changes in the largest individuals you're finding. And and go from there. Yeah, or you need a more accurate way of discerning whether or not they're sexually reproductive. Yeah. Which I guess you could do with an ultrasound or something. Yeah. I don't know. It just, it just rubbed me the wrong way how sort of confident some of the sayings were, and then this like weird top five comparison that felt very very vulnerable to um issues with non-random sampling okay so yeah the evidence for dwarfism is maybe not as compelling as we first thought um let's just give them let's just say for the benefit of the little conclusion that they're they were dwarfs they are dwarfs i mean I, there's certainly I mean, this, some evidence to suggest that they yeah, are yeah i think there is i think there is not, absolutely some evidence yeah, to suggest it's just not it. maybe just... as clear cut as is suggested yeah but so there's another small island called uh, Assateague island which is a barrier island off the coast of virginia and that also has a dense population of eastern hognoses but unlike the small island we've been discussing the snakes are not dwarfed and this is interesting because on that island, there are actually these large southern leopard frogs to eat. Whereas on the small island, the only amphibian present is fowler's toads, which are very small um, compared to the wide variety of toads, frogs and salamanders at the other sites. So all of the other sites, the other three sites in the paper have lots of different amphibian species, many of which are actually larger than fowler's toads. So there's, you know, a reason why they might have got become smaller is that they're eating a smaller prey and that's not to yep. say that they're not getting enough food and that's stunting their growth it's just because it's more likely because they don't need to be so big to tackle the small prey that they're encountering it's the whole like gate limitation stuff right exactly it'll, you don't it'll, need to be big, big head 
you yeah. can't chop up your food, so, <laughs> so you've got to be big, big enough, enough to, to take it. it all in one go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and you know, there's other snake species which have been shown to express dwarfism in response to similar situations. I mentioned the adders earlier, but we also know about the grass snakes, Natrix Natrix, that we discussed in episode 90. Females in the city got smaller, and that was likely due to reduced prey yep. availability. And that's only happened to the females. The males were already small, so they don't need to get smaller. It's the females that got smaller. Well, but, I mean, that's that's a really nice mirror of this this paper. Yes, right? it is. Just Although, the females getting smaller. Yeah. Well, yeah. again, it's at, it's less just the females getting smaller. It's the largest females getting smaller, right? Yeah, that's right. I, as as far as I can tell, the females on a population level is is not really it's not changing that much. Hmm. Yeah, but they did in episode 90, that paper, which was by uh, Burry and Zajac, they actually thought it was due to lack of prey rather than a change in the prey size, which is slightly ah, different okay. to the situation. Yep, yep. Yeah. Slightly different situation, but similar effect. So, yeah. do, they, do they mention anything about predation pressure? They don't really, know. Because that's one thing that sort of jumps jumps to mind I mean, I don't, I don't know why a small island would have uh, like a predation pressure against larger individuals. So it seems relatively unlikely, I suppose. Maybe that's why it's not brought up. You it's entirely would, plausible, though. I mean, you would have thought relaxed, you know, it's assumption on assumption, but small island, fewer predators, ability to grow larger because of lack of pressure, but we're not seeing that. We're seeing the opposite. So, yeah. Could be that there's a mainland predator that would eat smaller snakes, but isn't on the island. <laughs> exactly. It, it, it feels so sort of... I think their prey exploration is by far the most compelling. And even yeah. the lack of prey, I think, is less compelling because they're saying that it, there's a decent population there. I mean, I don't think... Do we get given any numbers? Or we just no, not really. Just a healthy population. Yeah. See, this is what's. I I think this is what's frustrating about this is it feels like we're we're being given a like a keyhole view into something really fascinating happening, but so many bits are like unpublished. You know, the the prey data, unpublished data, and there's a couple of other mentions of unpublished data. You don't quite have the full the full picture to really get your teeth into. Yeah. No, it's just like yep. There's only toads. These yeah. Yeah, and there's a healthy population. It's like, yeah, high high rates of of reproduction with no observed snakes in poor body condition or personal observation. It's like it's it's so on the cusp of explaining so much. Yeah, but toads of all life stages were extremely common. Personal observation. It's like just ah ah. I I find this paper frustrating because I it's so close to being really exciting yeah yeah i guess it's one of those ones isn't it um nothing's perfect but this one could be improved so um let's let's i think that's it really for uh eastern hognose snakes heterodon platyrinos hopefully that's been an enlightening venture into their color mutations and why they might exist and where they might exist and then you know a potential case or a case of island dwarfism, which uh, could do with a bit of fleshing out, but it certainly seems as though they are slightly smaller oh, on this one island. Yeah, than the no, other I, I, I think they're absolutely on the wrong. Uh, blah, blah, blah. They're absolutely on the right track. Like, there's definitely something going there. I just question whether it's sufficient to justify the conclusions that it's number one compelling and number two should be treated like a special population. 
Mm-hmm. If you use the word compelling and Ben disagrees, he will come after you. That's what you got to learn. <laughs> the thing is, no, it's, it's, it's me. It's me just feeling bad because the data's the data's not there for me to explore myself and to yeah. work it out whether I find it compelling. Yeah, like yeah, I don't yeah. like being told. <laughs> it's, it's me well, and the hangups. That's all it is. It's, it's not. We, we talk about open data every episode, and yeah, it's it's good for everyone. So um, they did have their new measurements. Their new measurements were available in the in the supplementary t- material. That's worth mentioning. Cool. But the stuff they got from the unpublished studies didn't appear to be so. Remains unpublished, I guess. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, let's talk about our species of the bye week. And we're obviously not going to be talking about hognose snake because a new one hasn't prescribed for a long time. But we are going to be talking about... <laughs> that would be cool... pretty wild, though, wouldn't it? it would we just did this whole thing about, like, eastern hognoses, then we get to a paper... Yeah, it turns out uh, all those morphs, separate species. Well, they did have the black ones named as a separate species back in the day. They used to be called right. uh, Plat- uh, Heterodon niger. But yeah. they uh, subsequently realised they were the same thing. They just come in different colours. So let's get <laughs> on to the species of the bye week. This is by De Oliveira de Medeiros Magalhães da Vega Texera de Moura Porto Guimarães Guireta and Tinoco. 2021, a new species of of Dendropsophus discipiens group from northeastern Brazil, published in PLOS One. So we're talking about the genus Dendropsophus, uh, which currently, prior to this paper, had 109 species uh, broadly distributed across neotropical rainforests and open areas from southern Mexico to northern Argentina and Uruguay, basically east of the Andes pick this one because it's in the americas it's as close as we could get as a new species so we tried plus our best. super cute plus funny little guy yeah so during field work in the atlantic forest remnants we're in pernambuco state southeastern brazil the authors collected some individuals of this dendropsophus discipiens group but they couldn't assign them to any of the five currently recognized species it was a mystery and what does that make you think i mean you think it might be a new species so what did they do they combined some morphological data acoustic data the noises they make and the molecular data from their Unfortunately, DNA. We do not have the acoustic mate, mate, files. Don't even there was get a me PDF mate, describing I excited, right? them. I was like, yeah, yeah, supplementary material for the acoustics. Is oh mate, the tire the file is entitled S2 Appendix, Sound Recordings and yep. Associated Information. I was yep. like, Yes. Let me hear what this little frog sounds like. But we can't. It's yeah. just I it's, I went looking for where the the audio recordings are stored to that museum. Get like, over it. Found mate. a found Once a website. That stage, no, yeah, it's nothing. Not finding like it. there's no portal for f- finding that data. It's it's buried in this. It's stored on some hard drive, I presume. Okay, so going forward, Ben, I think we should have a rule where if there's a sound recording of a frog mentioned and we can't hear it, we're not doing it as a species of the bi week. And I think that that will oh, very sounds quickly... like we are never going to be describing no, another no, no, frog. No, no, because on I the... think what you're not appreciating is the paradigm shift in acoustic biology that will be brought around, brought about by our small action. <laughs> because once these frog biologists realise that we're not going to feature their frog on our species of the bi week, there's going to be a cataclysmic shift, and everyone's going to be getting those sound recorders recording that frog which they already are but they're actually going to put it on the internet as a noise that we can play on our podcast in the background of describing the new frog species (laughs) because that is exactly how this should play out but we cannot absolutely 
I mean, you, you could do an impression though, based on the based on the sound wave, though, right? Uh, I haven't got it in front of me. Um, if I was, if I could do that, I would be a computer. I can't do that. I can't look at a sound wave and recreate the sound. Is there any human alive that can do that? Mate, just drop down to figure six. I believe in you. You've got frequency and amplitude described for you <laughs> in, a, in a nice little color key. Oh Don't my god! But but bear in mind the air temperature is twenty four point five and a humidity of seventy two. So you've got to adjust the sound for for your environment. Oh wow! Okay, so to me that's a high pitched sound, um, and it's very very short. There's it's a slowly rising. So to me that's like a. There you go. That's. That's the poor man's. Uh, <laughs> what's this frog called? Dendropsophus. Dendropsophus. Yeah. That's the best we could do. Let's talk about the etymology. Because um, that's quite cool. So I said it's called Dendropsophus tapicurensis. The specific epithet tapicurensis refers to the type locality the Tapakura Ecological Station. And in Tupagurani, which is an indigenous South American linguistic family we've talked about before in situations like this, the word Tapakura, which was originally Itapakura, actually means river, rock, spaciousness, cover, meaning a rock that covers the river or a capped rock river. So there'd be like a piece of rock that goes over the entirety of the mm-hmm. river, like a bridge. Yep. How cool is that? How cool is that? And of course, ensis just means originating in. So tapicurensis means originating in the Capped Rock River. And they're tiny. Yeah, they are little, 16, little, little. Is that in millimetres? 16 millimetres? Yeah. 16 and a half millimetres? Smaller than a human thumb. Tiny, tiny little guys. Smaller and than these the end piece beautiful, Well... Beautiful sort of like burnt yellow is what I would go with as a, as a descriptor, like uh, the top of a creme brulee. You're so bougie. That was the first <laughs> thing that came to your head. Like the top of a creme brulee. Hey, man. <laughs> Say no more. Yeah. It's just cooked custard. It's great. It is cooked custard, but it is delightful. Um, yeah. And, you know, you get to see the blowtorch come out, which is always fun at pudding. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, let's talk about the habitat. Oh, we mentioned, you know, they're from the two sites uh, and the region is characterized by a relictual forest. So bits and bobs of forest that are left over despite humans. And, oh, uh, as in quite... relic, relict, relic, bits of forest. Yeah, uh, in high altitude areas. They're also known as Brejo de Altitude or wet islands. So similar to the sky islands that we mm. always talk about in Africa. Another hotbed of biodiversity it would appear especially for little frogs yeah and uh, yeah, yeah. They're, f- they're found in these temporary ponds and the ponds look proper swampy um they look a bit too swampy actually it looks like a bit fetid um but yeah they found these individuals around these temporary ponds calling on shrubs and in vegetation um the ponds weren't very deep usually no more than a meter and uh, males were observed perched on leaves and branches, um, off the ground, and they were calling. And you heard the call earlier. I mean, that's pretty much exactly what they sound like. <laughs> and they call in the evening. So you could just imagine that coming from all around you, filling the air. Hmm. Magical. Glorious. Truly magical. Okay, so uh, yeah, that's a brand new species of the bye week. Any other business? Any other business? We have another preprint out. Yeet. Cameron Hodges is just put out the preprint on his uh, Bungaris tracking 
at the uh, at the university, showing them sneaking around under buildings and things like that. So that's kind of exciting. Um, so that's the Malayan crates. That's Malayan crates in this case. Yep. Yep. Wicked. Cool. So, I mean, they will have to do an episode on crates. Well, I mean, they're pretty fascinating little guys. I mean, yeah, I would love to read more about crates. I think they're awesome. Um, except for their, uh, well, no, no exceptions, actually. Nothing, everything about them is cool. That's great. Congratulations. Uh, so that's presumably in the review process. Uh, will be imminently. It's currently on BioArchive if you want to read it before that whole process. Cool. So um, I've got, uh, we've got a couple of new Patreons. So Ooh. thank you very much to Dr. Skylar Hopkins and John Jewell. Thank you very, very much. Very generous. Much appreciated. Keep and we had an email from our resident tortoise guy, Christopher, who was intrigued by our episode on tortoise sociality and raised a number of points, uh, which basically served to exemplify the fact that we really don't know what constitutes communication in tortoises. Um yeah, I think that's 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 the kicker. Is how do you determine sociality without knowing the details of how these animals are communicating? Mm, yeah, and he brings up a load of different things, observations that he's made of uh, tortoises which may be behaving in a social way. And particularly the paper that we covered last episode was to do with their recognition of faces. Tortoises like things which look vaguely like faces. They're drawn to them like moths to a flame, except for more slowly and <laughs> less, less dangerously. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so he brought up a bunch of stuff. Um Horsefield tortoises, battles, they start with head bobbing and getting in each other's grills face-wise. So that could be a, a, a facial recognition thing going on there. Um, yeah, I quite like that one. That one's that one to me is quite... Because like we brought up in the episode, it doesn't necessarily mean that they like faces. It's just that they have a heightened sensitivity towards them, potentially. Mm. So that's... Yeah. That, that one, that one I, I think there's some water there. If you're going to get up in someone's grill, you need to know where their face is so you know where you're getting up in. Yeah. Similarly, talks about an episode of David Attenborough's Life in Cold Blood series, actually um, widely regarded to be the best series David Attenborough's ever made, ever could make, or ever will make. It is uh, pretty damn good. Simply because it focuses on uh, our cold-blooded amigos. But yeah, he brings up episode one, The Cold-Blooded Truth, and they're on Dassan Island off the coast of South Africa. There's a big old colony of angulate tortoises, Casina angulata, uh, you know, 5,000 tortoises. And when they feed, they're surrounded by neighbours. Are they neighbours and friends? And mm-hmm. then they retreat to shrubs uh, to escape the heat where they're always in groups chilling out. Is that social? Is that not social? We can't really say because we don't really understand what constitutes sociality in these species. Um, another example where we just but need it, to know more. Right. And also need to know enough about their sort of uh, resource requirements too. Are they going to cool off? Are they going because it's quite comfy under bushes? Like, and there's just so many of them, they have to all squeeze in to make use of those resources. It, it's yeah. stuff like that. Would they actually prefer to go to their own bush, own private bush, if they could, but they can't? Because there's yeah, you can, 5,000 of them. Just You, you know. can easily imagine like aliens landing on Earth and they're just, they see humans getting onto a bus and they're like, look at that bizarre social behavior. A load of humans who are strangers to each other cram onto a small moving object and travel around together by means of socialising. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you've horribly misunderstood nah, the situation. Nah, <laughs> they're on <laughs> that bus because they're getting somewhere. <laughs> they're, not trying to, they're not trying to just socialise. But yeah, it's yeah. that kind of a thing, isn't it? We don't it understand. Is. It is. What are these tortoises thinking, goddammit? 
No, I, I like that as an example too. I yeah, like that, great email. That contrast. Very entertaining. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Christopher. So yeah, uh, I think that's it really. Yeah. Anything else? No, I think that's it. I think we're okay, good. Okay, cool. Well, all that remains to be said is you can get us on social media or you can email us herphighlights at gmail.com. If you want to become a Patreon, you can at patreon.com slash herphighlights. And we sell t-shirts, mugs, anything you want to slap a reptile on uh, <laughs> on our Redbubble site. So yeah, that's redbubble.com slash herphighlights. The new t-shirts are wicked. Um, Ben's nailed it. There's some really cool ones. So have a, have a look. Yeah. So thank you for listening. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.